0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be digging into a topic that is increasingly in the news, which is antibiotics in meat. Last week, the United Nations adopted a declaration to fight antibiotic resistance, outlining a broad set of goals to reduce the use of drugs in agriculture and human medicine. The document calls antibiotic resistance the, quote, greatest and most urgent global risk, threatening the landmark medical achievements of the 20th century. Just to give you some context, the passage of this declaration marks just the fourth time in the UN's 71-year history that it's called on world leaders to address health issues alongside issues like HIV-AIDS, chronic diseases, including obesity and diet-related diseases, um, and Ebola. I think most of us know that excessive use of antibiotics when we're sick can lead to resistance, but what exactly is the role of agriculture in in exacerbating this resistance? When and why did antibiotics enter our food chain and what are the repercussions? We're going to get into some of these questions in a a moment, but before we do, Taylor Lanzett, my associate producer, is in the studio with me to run through some of the biggest food policy stories from the past week. Hi, Taylor. Hey, Jenna. How's it going? You know, it's going. Good. One. Good. just our classic Wednesday. I <laughs> know. <laughs> Us in the
2: studio. All
1: right. Here we are. Yeah. What, what, what's uh, happened in the past week? So
2: first thing I want to talk about was Michigan Senator Debbie Stabenow, um, who's a member of the Senate Ag Committee, and she introduced a new urban ag bill this week. The bill would create a new urban ag office in the USDA and expand loan programs to city farmers. It would offer research and risk management tools, education and mentorship. I mean, it essentially is broadening the line between small farmer and urban farmer.
1: Um, Being both uh, in the food world and a proud Michigander, (laughs) I was super excited to read about this. Um, And I, of course, am not the only one. I've heard comments from Tom, like, support from Tom Le- Glikio, mm-hmm. organizations like the National Young Farmers Association, um, whose, uh, Lindsay Shute, uh, very own Lindsay Shoot has been on the show in the past. Um, they're, you know, they're all supportive because we know of the, the mirrored benefits from urban fa- farming, and, um, You know, for example, just to name a few, it's a great way for cities to uh, reuse vacant land, create jobs, potentially alleviate some of the pressures um, in food deserts. So, all in all, good stuff. Yeah, totally good stuff. Um, What's what's next for this bill? So,
2: Stabenow mentioned in a conference call that it's really unlikely that it will get traction.
1: (laughs) No future. (laughs) Um, But... Great.
2: (laughs) You know, the goal is (laughs) to really start um, sprinkling some of these things into the 2018 Farm Bill. Um, So... Maybe, you know, more to come in that, in that version, but, I, you know, we're going to cover urban ag more in depth later in the season, yeah. so yeah. we'll just dive into it then.
1: Okay. Yeah. Ta- put, a, put a pin in that. <laughs> uh,
2: so the other thing I want to talk about was uh, Clover Farms of California is launching a conventional line of milk that is GMO feed-free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in case there's confusion here, all organic milk must come from cows that have been given non-GMO feed. Right. Um Right. And so organic standards for milk also include things like um, hormones and antibiotics in terms of usage that they're not allowed. But um, conventional milk, there really aren't those those same guidelines. And so as we know, organic milk is super expensive and that's partially due to how expensive this GMO free feed is. So Clover's new line of milk will be in in between, really. Um, It's not quite organic, yet not quite conventional. And the cows will have been given the GMO free Feed. Um, right, and Clover is anticipating that's only going to cost about 25 cents more per gallon, um, and they've also pledged to absorb this cost for farmers who need to find new sources of feed and any other, you know, trans uh, transitional prices.
1: This is um, really interesting. I think for a couple of points, so um, we know that consumer interest in non GMOs is growing, and you know, and milk has always been kind of used as the um, like it's sort of like the or, the gateway organic purchase. Totally. Like if, if you're gonna buy organic, you're probably gonna start with a milk purchase. Yeah. Um, so I think this inter- this offers an interesting um, alternative, especially at like a very similar price point, whereas organic can be. Um, especially with dairy, more expensive. But it's also interesting because it's kind of calling out um, this concept, this idea of like GMO feed in Mm -hmm. particular, which is something that the federal GMO labeling bill and also the Vermont labeling bill um, doesn't actually require. Yeah, that's a really good point.
2: Um, It, you know, in sort of in addition to that sort of it's just, I'm excited to see it because it's a sweet spot for people who, you know, it's like seven dollars a gallon for organic milk. So if someone can't afford that, like it's right in between. It's right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, and it's also I think we've seen this with many small scale producers who um, potentially not of clover size, you know, but like Rony Brook and uh, five acre farms in New York where they're sort of in between and they don't say that they're organic, but they take a lot of these steps.
1: Right, in terms of like high production value. Yeah,
2: yeah, cool. Yeah, so milk, milk. <laughs> um, okay, so the White House issued a report on the country's heart health, uh, and overall heart disease has been declining since two thousand nine. Woohoo! <laughs> it's fallen by fourteen percent for adults over the age of eighteen, and the report goes on to share that lots of the factors um, that sort of you know, really led to this um, were a combination of things like the new nutrition labels, uh, decline in people smoking, calorie labels on fast food menus, voluntary sodium reductions, um, you know, progress that we've seen from the Let's Move campaign. Um, Sort of the mix of all these actions really guided this uh, this decline. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And 14% really is a significant number, right? Mm-hmm. I think that um, just to give you guys some, some context, like in terms of when looking at public health outcomes, um, especially around any sort of like obesity or diet related disease, um, it, typically these kinds of interventions that you, they take a while to yield results, mm-hmm. um, like many, many years. And sometimes even like a generation. And so a yeah. uh, f- 14% is like quite a big, quite a big change um, which is very encouraging to see in a relatively short period of time I would say Yeah. Um, I hope that uh, we can or that you know the public health community can kind of use this data to show support for the various programs and policies that promote healthy eating like I'm thinking specifically of the National School Lunch Program Mm -hmm. Nutritional Guidelines which we know are still stalled in Congress despite being almost a year to the day Delayed. Um, so yeah. So I, I or yeah. So I hope that they can kind of use this to be like, look, it's working. We need to yeah get, m- get I going. I
2: completely agree, and hopefully we'll see these numbers, you know, continue down, g- go down further with the expansion of programs like this. Um, this is the perfect segue for our last news update, which of course uh, is election news. All right. Uh, we love so, it. Love it. Big
1: week for the big election. Big week.
2: <laughs> Fun week. Yeah, scary political, week. political. Yes. <laughs> so, food got zero airtime. Yes, on Monday's so debate.
1: Dun- <laughs> <Ta-da>. <laughs> <Let's> just,
2: <laughs> there, big week.
1: Zero airtime. Yeah,
2: zero <laughs> airtime. <laughs> Not the slightest mention. There were some rumblings about California Ag Secretary Karen Ross as a potential USDA pick for Clinton um, for a secretary, uh, but that's really it.
1: Um, Ross would be a great pick. That would be that would be exciting to see. Um, she served as the chief of staff for Vilsack for a couple of years and is generally well liked in California. Yeah. Um, but you're right. We didn't we didn't talk, didn't hear anything about food um, during the debate, but. There was a discussion on body image um, when Secretary Clinton brought up the former Miss Universe, um, for Miss Universe, um, yeah. who Trump bullied about her weight and appearance. That was insane. Like, like for real. Yeah, that
2: was. <laughs> you're right. So publicly
1: not, and and a, and a couple of times.
2: Yeah, not not food um, related, but that is definitely in terms of body image. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about that next week.
1: Yeah, and she actually went on um, CNN and and discussed it. I saw an interview with her and Anderson Cooper last night. And this, I have to say, like as a woman and as somebody who personally has struggled with body issues, as so many of us have, I was particularly offended. <laughs> I was yeah. just offended. I mean, you know, like, like I guess I shouldn't be surprised um, because he seems to be offensive every yeah. day. But this is just added to the list.
2: That was, yeah, the, the sort of pundits I was listening to after, said so that was one of her strongest moments that felt like the most genuine when right. she was like, this let's not
1: forget about this. Right, totally. And so, yeah, to your point, we're going to be talking next week with doc- Dr. Brian Wansink of Cornell's Food and Brand Lab about his new um, research study on body image. So if cool. this is something that's of interest to you, listeners, be sure to um, tune in next week as well.
2: Yeah, I can't wait for that discussion. Yeah. Also, Clinton came out in support of WOTUS. WOTUS, uh, WOTUS, which stands for Waters of the U.S., and it recently has gotten a lot of attention because it clarifies which waters the EPA can regulate, and this is all based on the Clean Water Act. It essentially means that all streams, rivers, ponds, wetlands, ditches—you name it—can um, be regulated, um, sort of under the under the guidelines of the Clean Water Act. Um, which means that they can govern everything to a T,
1: like um, such precision. Yeah. So, thumbs up.
2: Thumbs up. Yeah. For,
1: in our opinion. Yeah. But I, but for the rural rural voters and in ag industry, I, I'm imagining there is some pushback to this. Right. Um, particularly
2: because it would require a permit for a pesticide application near any collected water. Um, so it will be a yeah. very big, uh, it's a big lift. Yeah, it's a big lift. Um, and you know, there's essentially they're trying to avoid, you know, contamination and sort of just pollution of waters. Yeah. So the outcome, the goals are there, but of course it's going to require a lot of paperwork and a lot of time. It a little time. burdensome.
1: <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: and Donald Trump has come out, um, in full opposition against it. Obviously.
1: Yeah. Pollution everywhere, for everybody. For everyone,
2: for all. <laughs> heard it here, heard it on Eating Matters. Heard
1: it here first. <laughs> okay, uh, we're going to have to leave it there for our news segment. If you have thoughts on the stories we discussed today or um, something you would like for us to include next week, you can email us at eatingmattersheritageradionetwork.org or find us on Twitter at EatMattersHRN.
3: to you by Bad Citizen and this track is called Dead of Night.
1: Okay, now I want to turn to our feature story today about antibiotics in meat, why and how this became an issue and the repercussions for both consumers and industry. Joining me on the line today to help us understand the complexities of this very important issue is Emily Aguirre. Emily is the academic fellow at the Resnick Center for Food Law and Policy at UCLA's School of Law. Um, Emily teaches at the law school and has re- researched and written extensively on antibiotics, especially on how to best regulate uh, their use in food-producing animals. She has um, an article, in fact, due out on the subject in March 2017, and we are so excited to have her on the show today. Emily, welcome. Thanks so much, Jenna. Um, okay, so uh, can you can we start by you giving us a, an overview of the Resnick? program um i know for our long-term listeners um you know that our show creators kim kessler um started this 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 radio show um when she was at the resnick program but i feel like um you know it's been a while since we have kind of delved into and spoken with somebody from the from the program so can you kind of give us an overview about the work that you do there
4: Yes. Uh, The Resnick Program is an academic program at UCLA Law, and we here at the program study and advance solutions for improving the modern food system. So, we cover a wide range of food policy topics and issues at every level, local, state, national, global, um, with the idea of supporting a food system that is equitable and healthy and sustainable And transparent and so we do this through research and education and we do this through leadership development and student training and then also by creating and advancing practical solutions.
1: And how did you um, come to start working on this topic of antibiotics in meat?
4: I started researching this about a year ago.
1: Um, Antibiotics
4: as we all know are critical to modern medicine and It's become a a really big topic um, that they're losing their effectiveness at an alarming rate. So if the trend continues, um, we're going to lose the ability to treat basic infection. So I started looking at this topic about a year ago, and then California passed um, a law on antibiotics that banned some some really um, bad uses of antibiotics that we can talk more about Mm -hmm. in a second. And that's stricter than the federal policy, so it actually became a really interesting time to start looking at this topic. The research got even more interesting and even a bit more hopeful because now we have a state, a really big state, starting to move in this area, so it's, um, it's been a, a really interesting year in this area.
1: Um, can we, okay. Yeah. So I definitely, we're, um, going to get into sort of the more like policy regulatory, uh, landscape questions, um, after the break, probably specifically, but just to kind of like, let's talk about the issue. Um, you know, like when, when did we start using antibiotics in the U S in our food system? Why? Um, and you know, who are the basically the biggest users?
4: Yes, let's start from the beginning. So, <laughs> in the late 1940s, um, Farmers started using, producers started using pharmaceutical waste in their animal feed as a protein source. Whoa. And then they noticed
1: that... That, that sounds um, gross. I did not know that. That's gross. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Real-time so, reaction then they here.
4: they started noticing that it was promoting um, faster growth in animals so they could give them the same amount of feed and the animals were growing more quickly. Huh. And they figured out that it was because of the antibiotics that was in the pharmaceutical waste. Okay. Um, so they realized that it started promoting the growth even quicker, and then they started realizing that they could start packing more and more animals in and leaving them in unsanitary conditions, and they could give antibiotics um, prophylactively, preventatively, mm-hmm. and this allowed them to prevent an entire flock or an entire herd from getting sick. So they had animals growing faster and faster, and then they could also put more and more in at a time, and they could use antibiotics to, to have that system work.
2: Is this something that primarily happens within large-scale industrial agriculture, or absolutely? Do, okay, yeah. do we see smaller farms doing it too?
4: Well, it just it, it depends on how they're raising them and whether they want to put antibiotic-free on their label, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but in as a general rule of thumb, if you have more space, then you would have less of a need. If you have more space per animal, you'd have less of a need to use antibiotics.
2: To prevent disease,
1: okay, and just, if, just like in humans, like crowding breeds diseases, right? Yeah, that makes exactly. Sense. Okay.
2: Are there yeah. any records of um, farms still feeding waste from pharmaceutical? Please say no. <laughs> <company>.
4: <laughs> you know, I'm not sure, um, and I don't even know if that would be publicly available. I'm not sure oh, yeah. if they still do that.
1: Yeah, I, if they do, I. I I'm pretty sure they don't want anyone to know about it. For sure. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I have to ask: is this a is this like a an issue that's mostly um, a U.S. issue? Um, are other countries engaging in this practice? As yeah, well? so definitely
4: yeah. a global issue, um, although to varying levels. So um, the EU, for example this practice 11 years ago. So of course they 11 do. years. <laughs> yeah. So we are, that's how far behind yeah. we are on this issue. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. But other countries have no legislation on this at all. So okay. about half the world, about half of the countries in the world um, are, are lacking in legislation on this topic.
1: Um, what, uh, what kind of animals are, are used? I mean, are there, are there those in particular where antibiotics are used more than others?
4: It's all of them.
1: All of them? <laughs> Including fish. Wow.
2: wow. Yeah. Wow. Can, can you quantify the amount that's being used? Maybe
1: in like the ag- aggregate? Yeah.
4: Yeah. So about 70 to 80% of antibiotics in this country are sold each year for use for animals. So about twenty to thirty percent are used on humans, and seventy to eighty percent are used for animals. Wow. Uh, the problem is that beyond that we don't have any data on this, so it 's really hard to know mm-hmm. beyond these aggregate sales what the use actually is. Um, we don't have a clear picture
1: so not, like no breakdown across animals exactly. or um, how is that possible? I mean, I mean that's a more like a theoretical question. Um, but well, there's
4: <laughs> no laws that require it, so we don't we don't require any data collection on this, and so there really isn't much.
2: Um, you know,
4: with the great. exception of the new California law, I should
2: add. Yeah, right. A reason to have Karen Ross as um, secretary of AG and can take her California knowledge and uh, yeah, apply it
1: to the federal <laughs> level. <Yeah. laughs> Going back to our news updates. <laughs> um, Oh, okay, so I'm still. <laughs> I'm still. Um, I, th- I think that this issue is not really as as kind of un- widely understood, right? But it's like it's shocking. Um, some of these yeah, sort of I statistics right. that you have. Um, have shared with us um okay so let's talk a little bit about kind of why why i'm i'm so taken aback maybe by some of the facts that you've shared like what are the i want to talk about the repercussions um so yeah. so uh, can we and i want to do it both like what what the positive consequences have been um and then the negative also so can you t- um talk to us a little bit about like i guess what the benefits of this has been maybe particularly for industry
4: yeah so Let me talk you through really quickly how this is done. So how this is done is the animals are given really low doses of antibiotics over a long period of time. So if you think about um, when you are prescribed antibiotics at the doctor, you're told to only take your course of treatment and you're told to take the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that's important is because when you give antibiotics in small doses, over this like very long period of time, it is the perfect breeding ground for resistant bacteria. That's how the bacteria breed. So it's actually the worst possible practice that you can have to be administering the antibiotics in this way. So that's Mm -hmm. why your doctor doesn't tell you to do it in that way because it it breeds these bacteria that then um, they get into our groundwater, they get into the air, they get on the meat that we eat. So that's how it transfers from animals to humans. so the positives for industry have absolutely been lower costs and taking a shortcut here. They, they can use less feed and they can use less sanitary conditions and, um, and it's a pretty easy way of doing that. Now the negative for us is that it increases our antibiotic resistance.
1: Right, um, is, so that's that's the primary drawback for for humans. That's the primary
4: yeah. drawback. Yes, so two million illnesses every year, twenty three thousand deaths every year from this, and it's numbers that continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger from and a- from antibiotic you, resistance, from antibiotic yep. resistance okay. exactly. Mm-hmm. And then, if you care about animal welfare, also. Um, this is a way. This is really treating animals really inhumanely. It's allowing you to cram them into cages in very cramped conditions. So, for so, some people, that's a big thing too.
1: So, what we think of when we think of like the um, confined animal, Ca- yeah, feeding, yeah. feeding, feeding operations, feeding operations the campos, CAFOs, exactly. factory farms, mm-hmm. industrial farming—other terms that people might have heard mm-hmm. thrown around. This is um, this is where antibiotic resistance is bred. Yeah, exactly.
2: Is this something that disproportionately affects certain groups like children or like the elderly in terms of antibiotic resistance, or is it really sort of equally detrimental to everyone?
4: That's a great question. I'd have to look at the breakdown of the data, but um, I would imagine that vulnerable populations would probably be Mm -hmm. at bigger risk. Mm -hmm. Um, But it just kind of depends on which strain you get. So If you get a strain that is resistant to antibiotics, then there's not anything that can treat you, no matter who you are.
1: (sighs) And and they haven't they haven't been able to track um, of the people who have are resistant to antibiotics and maybe who um, die because of it. Like where that resistance kind of came from, or is it because it's so? Um, I guess it, yeah. That's the like like it, ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah. Is it is it um, is it trackable in any way, shape, or form to diet or to um, excessive use if you got sick?
4: Yeah, not not really. Um, not from what I've seen. Um, maybe there's more science on this that I haven't seen, yeah. but, um, but from what I've seen, it's kind of hard to tell exactly where it came from, unless you got it from eating
1: meat. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a... Epidemiological <laughs> dream <laughs> <Exactly>. project. <laughs> yeah. should ask our friends in
4: epidemiology. Yes.
1: Um, okay. So we're going to actually take a quick break um, and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into um, how, if at all, it doesn't sound like it is, very regulated, um, and what you as a consumer can do to avoid eating meat treated with antibiotics. Stay tuned.
3: The following program has been brought to you by Taberdin. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit taberdin.com.
1: And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Emily Aguirre, uh, academic fellow at the UCLA Resnick Program on Food Law and Policy about antibiotics in our food system. Okay, so Emily, what state or federal agencies are responsible for regulating antibiotic use and then specifically antibiotic use in our food supply?
4: Yeah. So, and actually, before I answer that, I just want to say,
1: mm-hmm.
4: I had a look at my notes, and um, there, although we don't really understand the epido- epidemiology of transmission on on this issue, mm-hmm. there have been numerous studies that have um, traced human infection from drug-resistant pathogens. They've traced it back to animal sources, oh, so right. it is something that has been studied a bit. Right, I just don't have a ton of knowledge on it. I just right. wanted to clarify yes. that.
1: Yes, yeah, thank you. Um, um, so, yes.
4: The FDA is who regulates us on this issue.
1: Uh, like like across the board is the USDA. I, I think of antibiotic use being particularly prevalent in the poultry industry. Um, is the USDA involved at all because it, it has to deal with poultry also, or is it just uh, within the US, FDA?
4: F- FDA has the authority from Congress to regulate all new drugs, mm-hmm. whether it's in humans or in animals. So, um so FDA is the is the regulating body on this one. Okay. USDA comes into play a little bit um, because there are, it's, a, it's a messy, complicated food yes. regulatory world out there. Yes, but, it is. Um, for our purposes, <laughs> we can just talk about FDA.
2: Okay. All right. Um, are there any uh, recent or past uh, current pending le- legislation that sort of is around curbing its use? Um, apart and, from
1: the California law yeah, that you apart mentioned, in
2: California. Um, and if so, so, yeah.
4: So the FDA has a really complicated but ultimately pretty weak voluntary system. Um, it consists of a few documents that have voluntary guidance, and then they have a rule that industry can opt into if they want to bind themselves to it. Nice. So that's the current framework that we're working with. <laughs>
1: wow.
3: there,
4: yeah. Uh. There has been a bill that's been sitting in Congress, it's been languishing there for about 15 years it keeps <laughs> getting reintroduced. It's called PAMTA. And um, it would be great to be passed, but it just keeps sitting there.
1: Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, even with, I mean, I, I mentioned at the top, like this new um, UN declaration, which granted was pretty recent. But, I mean, if the UN is kind of gathering on this, it, it, this this issue has been out there, right, for, for quite yeah. some time. And um, it just is, it seems shocking to me how kind of unstudied, unquantifiable, unregulated this this issue really is. Um, what about at the state level, like or the local level, where we tend to see a lot of um, policy interventions kind of take hold?
4: So the great news is that California passed its law a year ago, and it comes into effect um, January 2018. So we still have actually quite some time before that. Yeah. in Effect. But um, other states have had some. A handful of other states, you know, maybe eight or so, have had pending legislation at some point, but haven't passed it through yet. Hmm. So, so we really haven't seen a lot going through on this issue. There have been lots of um, advisory panels and um, you know, people who are researching and trying to think about this, but in terms of
1: laws on the topic, yeah. not so much task forces.
4: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Many a task force many a task on this force. topic.
1: Okay, it's I got. I guess you got to start somewhere. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it's a little joke for anyone who's been in government, I <laughs> think. No. So, um okay, what about um what, can you can you tell us a little bit more about the specifics of the California law like the types of things that it's going to call yes. for? Absolutely. So, the California law
4: is important because it bans um, it bans two types of uses of antibiotics. So, one, it bans the growth promotion use, which is getting these animals to grow more quickly. And then, two, it also bans the disease prevention use. So, it bans um, producers from using antibiotics in order to um, prevent disease just routinely at As a, routine a prophylaxis level. Exactly. Yeah, okay. um, so, it does both of those things, which the federal government advises producers not to use these for gross promotion, but it doesn't say anything about disease prevention.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: So California is important because it actually addresses that loophole and closes it. And then the other reason why California is really important is because it mandates data collection. So uh-huh. finally we'll be able to get some information about what's going on for producers.
1: Yeah. Cause if you can't measure it, you can't, me- you can't manage it. Exactly. Um, what about, uh, um, was Were there any lawsuits? I mean, I'm just thinking, like, industry response, like, did California mm-hmm. get sued? Um, is there anything that's standing in the way of potentially this law going into effect?
4: Yeah. So, actually, two points there. One is California did a really good job in writing this law and in, in getting industry on board with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it did a really good job in that. So everybody kind of was able to come together to at least agree somewhat on this law. Um, but it absolutely is open to challenge, because California is legislating in an area that's regulated by the FDA, so mm-hmm. absolutely somebody could challenge this and say that California has stepped out of its bounds. Whether they will, because there's so much now public movement against antibiotics that I don't think anybody wants to be the company to stand up and say, we're suing California because we really want to use antibiotics in our food. Yeah. Right. Um,
1: Well, wouldn't they they just have their trade association do it for them?
4: (laughs) Right. That's that's the general technique. So we will see if that happens. And if so, that will be a really interesting case because
1: it's
4: not entirely clear what the outcome would be.
2: Do you know how much of the meat that we consume in the country comes from California?
4: It's a pretty big producer. Um, I have the stats in front of me. Somewhere. I'm
1: thinking like California cows are happier cows. Yeah, that's I'm, for right. Exactly. <laughs> um, it's
4: it's a relatively big. I, yeah. I know. I won't say the numbers off the top of my head because I don't have them. But it's um, it's a pretty big producer. So it's cool. going to be a. It'll yeah,
1: have that's a significant, significant impact. It that's
4: could great. have a significant impact. Yeah.
2: yeah. What um, would what would the effects of reduced antibiotics look like on you know for our food system and for the consumer?
4: Yeah, that is a great question. So, I think there's a depressing part of the answer and there's a very hopeful part of the answer. The depressing part of the answer is that it's too late for the drugs that we already have. Everything that we have that has been found that bacteria have become resistant to, there's no undoing that. Um, But it's not too late for the ones that we have yet to discover. So the problem is that every time scientists come up with a new drug, less and less time is passing before the antibiotic-resistant bacteria develop. So in the past, with the first drugs that we ever discovered, it would take years before they would be resistant. Um, Now it takes less than a year, so we're really outpacing ourselves. So it's really critical to address this now before we're left with no drugs, no ability to treat basic infection, to do surgeries. That's kind of the future that we're looking at. But we can protect ourselves from future drugs that we develop. It's
1: a frightening, frightening reality. Um, I want to – I actually – I had one more question about the California law. Um, Yeah. uh, Just a point of clarification. Is that for all um, uh, animals – Raised and kind of produced in California, or does it also exactly. include imports, if you will, in, in That's a great question. It's
4: just for produced in California, okay. and that's uh, that's for um, constitutional reasons.
1: Right. So, um, so maybe that reduces the, ch- the likelihood that they will be sued, though, because unlike I'm, I'm th- referencing the or thinking about the Vermont GMO legislation, right. um, which would have affected all products coming into the into the state as well. Exactly, and the California egg law had the same problem. And so it's just for animals raised in California. Exactly. Okay. All right. Um, what uh, we... Oh, we're running a little bit short on time. We can, and, and we definitely want to kind of continue this conversation in another episode, um, for sure. But I just, I think one final question, or maybe, maybe two. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, how, how can consumers navigate um, the food food labeling on this issue? So, what yeah. should we look for in labels um, if we want to like avoid eating meat that's treated with antibiotics?
4: Yes. So this is actually kind of a tricky question because. Um, right now the labels that we have are for antibiotics free and so, you know Obviously, that's the best approach right now is to go for antibiotics free and that's great And you really want to support that the problem is that what we really need isn't antibiotics free We need judicious use of antibiotics, okay, so, but that's really not a very sexy label So I don't see people <laughs> kind of going for that But um, people don't really like the idea of any antibiotics in their meat but um, the problem with no antibiotics use is that it's not realistic and it's not humane. So it doesn't, if an animal is actually sick, we want to be able to treat it. And that yes. doesn't make it unsafe or unsavory to eat. Um, right. But if you can't treat it, then you can't put antibiotics three on the label. And then you're just inhumanely leaving this sick animal without any treatment. You're pulling it from production. Yeah. So, so no antibiotics isn't the answer either. But right now it's kind of aside from not eating meat, the only way forward. Um, but what we really need is to just use our antibiotics in a really smart and judicious and limited way where it's actually necessary.
1: Right. So the this no antibiotics, is that um, in, included within the organic designation? Or does the organic, sorry to throw this kind of outside question, but does the organic designation allow for the use of um, antibiotic use when the animals, when it's medically indicated necessary?
4: Um, So they can, if antibiotics are used to treat illness, then the beef and dairy product can no longer label the meat organic.
1: Huh. Okay. So
4: organic is supposed to cover that. Yeah.
1: Got it. So for now, look, and and is antibiotics free? Is that actually regulated? Like, is that a for real label that um, has the... I don't know regulatory force of law, if you, if you will, as opposed no, to some a, of these made yeah, up labels. Yeah, great question.
4: Um, they let's see. It's hmm, that's a great question.
1: We can um, we can kind of come back to that also, yeah. and okay. um, yeah, <laughs> if if you want to, if you want to email me or we can talk offline, and I can um, put the question, the response to the question, in our newsletter. Yeah, um, this week. Uh, and also tweet about it. How does that sound? Perfect. People are gonna have to sign up for the newsletter, though. <laughs> it's great. It's really good. <laughs> I think the the
4: takeaway here is just that um, it's the best label that we can trust, but it may not mean exactly what you think it means. Like it may not mean that it was raised completely naturally or right. without any kind of medication or things like
1: that. So always read labels pretty much all labels with a little bit of skepticism absolutely (laughs) okay (laughs) all right well we're gonna have to leave it there for today emily i want to thank you so very much for coming on the show it was great to have you
4: thanks so much for having me
1: that's right you guys heard it you guys heard it. That's the sound of our, the the of our startup segment. <laughs> um, next up, okay, we are we're, the, our segment where we feature innovative and exciting new food companies at the end of each episode. Um, today, I am pleased to introduce Ben Simon, co-founder and CEO of Imperfect Produce, a home and office produce delivery company based in, Ca- in San Francisco. Hi, Ben.
5: Hey guys, good to be with you. How's it going?
1: Great right to have you. Great to good, have you, Ben. It's good, except for my like introduction to that segment, which was a little all over the <laughs> no, place. No, that was awesome. I got I was like, like ah. explosion. I got.
5: It's awesome. This
1: is a st- sound of a car starting up. Get it?
5: <laughs> I, like it. Uh, I like it. Hopefully, it's a Prius.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> touche. <is> well done. <laughs> uh, okay, Ben. We're gonna we're gonna get down to business now. Can you um, tell us about Imperfect Produce and uh, and how it works?
5: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Imperfect Produce is the country's leading brand for ugly produce. So we source the, you know, the underdog, the the ugly ones that uh, the farmers can typically not sell Mm -hmm. to uh, grocery stores because of these cosmetic challenges. They're basically, you know, they've got some scarring, they've got the wrong shape, the wrong size, but they're perfectly good. Uh, fruits and vegetables, same nutritional value. So we source that produce from California farmers. Mm -hmm. Uh, We bring it to our warehouse in the Bay, and we pack customized boxes for our customers, and we sell these big boxes of ugly produce for 30 to 50% cheaper than grocery store prices.
2: Wow. Can you tell us about the main issue that Imperfect seeks to address and its relation to how you came to launch Imperfect?
5: Yeah. So imperfect main issue that we're fighting is food waste. And, you know, it's, it's finally, you know, getting its moment, mm-hmm. uh, food waste. Yeah. It's a really big issue. Uh, we waste 40 percent of the food that's grown in this country, a huge, enormous amount, really is one of the biggest drivers of global warming, of global resource overconsumption. It's a huge, huge issue. Um, if we, if food waste was its own country, the greenhouse gas emissions from food waste would be third in the world, only to U.S. and China. Wow. It's just so much uh, resources and land and labor goes into food, and then we just throw away almost half of it. (laughs) So it's a huge issue, um, especially with this drought in California. And before this, um, I was in the food waste field trying to – I created a student movement with some friends uh, friends of mine
3: Uh
5: uh, called Food Recovery Network. Um, where we basically recover the food from campus dining halls that would otherwise be wasted and donate that uh, to local soup kitchens and homeless shelters. And, yeah, it's at, like, 200 college campuses now. So it's it's one of the the leading food waste orgs.
1: Wow. Yeah, so you've been busy.
5: food waste all I day. Have, I haven't. I've <laughs> been having a lot
1: of fun. Yeah. Okay. So, and so the idea is that you, Imperfect, um, will go and source from the the leftover food that maybe isn't sellable because some people think it is not as pretty and um, that food would otherwise go to waste in, in a landfill and break down and start its destructive path towards... That's what we
5: do. That's what we mask do. Mask. We started about a year ago. We're up to about uh, 10,000 customers in the Bay Area now. Wow. Uh, yeah, and it's only growing from there.
1: And, and can you tell us a little bit about your model, like how it works, walk us through the process if uh, if for new customers and what you can expect? Yeah,
5: yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. This is my uh, opportunity to give the shameless plug. So Do you go That's to the- uh-huh. Um We're currently serving the whole Bay Area. Um, plan to expand to every address in California by early 2017. So basically, as a customer, you go to imperfectproduce.com. You can check out, we have 12 different produce boxes. We've got like small, medium, large, extra large. We've got organic, conventional. And then if you're a fruit lover or you just want your veggies, we want a combination, you can choose that as well. Um, So you set your default box. Mm -hmm. And then that sets a recurring order for you, either weekly or every other week. You can always skip it if you're on vacation. Okay. And then we also send you basically an email reminder each week a few days before your order um, to give you a couple days where you can basically customize your order. So if you want to make some killer guac this weekend, you can throw in a bunch of extra ugly avocados.
1: (laughs) That sounds delicious. Um, uh, okay so it sounds kind of like a CSA model but one in which you like you said you can select the type of products you want um, I know that CSAs were created in part to help farmers move excess produce after the fact including some items that weren't ordered so how do you as like from a, from a supply chain perspective how do you ensure you have enough um, supply to allow consumers to choose what they want to purchase um, yes that's the end of my question. Yeah,
5: <laughs> <laughs> feel that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so for, for us, you know, we're really solving a problem on the supply side, which is that this produce, there's just a huge excess of it, of produce that is shaped unconventionally. You know, it's not okay, the right. perfect shape and size that grocery stores want. So that's the problem that we're solving is that according to, to NRDC and other agencies like Feeding America there's like 6 billion pounds of this stuff that doesn't even have a processor market it's just going to animal feed or compost you know getting sold for 1 cent a pound or just getting killed under in a field mm-hmm. so there's just so much of this supply i mean we work with 70 farmers across california and we still have other farmers out there that want to work with us that we can we don't even work work with because we have more there's greater supply than there is demand right now so um, yeah, we don't anticipate running, uh, running out of supply uh, anytime in the near future.
2: Yeah, that's, I'm pretty interested in sort of the farmer buy-in to this model and just, um, I guess, sort of how receptive farmers have been with you guys, only because I'm thinking about, you know, the labor dollars of harvesting produce that otherwise maybe they wouldn't have, um, or like how have farmers that you work with, how have they sort of talked about that in terms of what you guys are doing?
5: Yeah, so I think it's definitely a big help to the farmers to be able to get any significant revenue off of this this product that you know they write it on their their P and L each year as a loss. They're just forecasting that they're just going to have to take a loss on like 15 percent of their product. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're lucky, they'll be able to you know figure out some deal with a processor or something like that for five cents a pound or something. Um, so when we pay them a real price of you know. For on the conventional side, it could be 20, 30, 40 cents a pound, or organic could be twice that much. You know, it really does make a difference, especially now that we have grown as a business and we, we could be buying, you know, 4,000 pounds of a single item, you know, in a, in a yeah. given week from a farmer. That, that revenue really does speak volumes to them. Um, so I think, I think that's the biggest thing is just being able to, to help them out and, and, you know, give them a little bit of extra revenue um, for this product.
1: One of the other benefits um, that we that I learned about from your company is that you offer a discount to lower income populations. Is that is that right?
5: Yeah. Yeah, that is right. Um, Yeah, we got that idea from, you know, a. A student organization at Brown University called Market Shares. That sounds like and... <laughs> a great program. <laughs> <laughs> the small world, huh? That's and we, small uh, world. <laughs> you know, so but basically, we want to make the price accessible for everybody. We don't want anybody to be priced out of fresh produce. So, um, you know, we offer an extra thirty-three percent off mm-hmm. if you're if you identify as low SES, if you qualify um, for uh, CalFresh, you know, oh, yeah. SNAP benefits. Yeah. If, if you're at that income level or below, you can get extra uh, 33% off, which puts the price at around half of what it costs in grocery stores. You know, plus the fact that, you know, we deliver in all of Oakland, and there's certain parts of Oakland that are food deserts also. Yeah. So, you know, especially in the future when we can accept SNAP benefits. Right. Um, through, as an online retailer, because currently we can't. Right. Um, there's been some articles about that recently. That's one of our barriers right now. But as soon as we can accept that, we think that this can also be a really big vehicle to fight hunger and food insecurity in food deserts as well.
1: Oh, that's, I think that's so awesome. And you're, you happen to be speaking with two people who are huge proponents of the USDA modernizing and allowing, yeah. um, recipients you, to, you guys to would it. make a great pilot program yeah. for that. Hey, USDA. <laughs> and they're accepting applications go. now, right? Yeah. Pilot. We're
5: just for... applying right now. All so. right.
1: Well, we're, we definitely wish you luck on that front. Um, would be, would be such a benefit to so many people. Um, Okay, I have to ask the question though, so it seems like you offer your, um, your products at such a fabulous price point, um, an accessible price point, but how, you know, from like a business perspective, how are you guys um, able to stay afloat and even grow?
5: Yeah, well, I think one of the things with us is that by offering such an affordable price point mm-hmm. where you also, you have the social value as well and the, you know, helping farmers Fighting food waste, and you save money, and it's convenient. So it's really kind of like there's so many different value propositions right. for the user. So I think that's one of the things that has really helped it to grow. Uh-huh. And when when you grow the way we have, you achieve a really great route density. So like we have like one in seventy five households in all of Oakland and Berkeley are
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
5: customers. Right now, subscribers to it. Yeah, wow. Uh, and there's, I mean, certain neighborhoods where you'll have like every tenth household. So it just makes it super, super easy to cut costs that way on the delivery because you're able to drop off, you know, drop off one house and then the next house you're dropping off at is just the next block over. Um, so I mean, there's a lot of kind of economies of scale that we're able to see um, as we're uh, as we're expanding, um, and you know, it's. Produce, as it leaves the farm, I mean, there's so many middlemen traditionally yeah. in the normal supply chain that we're also cutting out a few steps there by just bringing it straight from the farmer to our warehouse and then packing boxes and going straight to people's house households. So we're pretty much able to cover our costs as a business.
1: So you're reducing, by reducing a lot of the inefficiencies in mm-hmm. a more traditional supermarket model.
5: Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yep.
1: All right, Ben. Just because we have to know,
2: when are you coming to New York? Yeah, and is the plan
5: to expand uh-huh. come, to what cities? Coming soon, hopefully.
2: <laughs> Give us some time. Give us a couple of years.
1: Okay. Oh, cool. <laughs> but oh
2: definitely no, plans for expansion. It takes time. It takes yeah, time. Yeah.
1: Yes. I know. I shouldn't. I shouldn't um, encourage you to grow too quickly. We have seen so many. Um, examples of companies that have fallen into that trap and that are no longer around at least in New York because of it so maybe we'll just um, have to go to San Francisco maybe we just have to go to San Francisco (laughs) that's that's that yeah yeah but um okay great well um we're gonna unfortunately have to leave it there but uh such an awesome company and Ben thank you so much um for coming on the show and then just one one more time where where can uh consumers in the Bay Area go to sign up
5: yeah, they can check us out at imperfectproduce.com. And if anyone wants to use my personal promo code, pretty ugly, you can get your <laughs> first first box free up to
1: $20. I love it. Pretty ugly. That's amazing. All right. Well, then, right, thanks. Taylor,
5: thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks, okay. Bye.
1: Bye. Okay, with that, I'm gonna to have to wrap it up for today. Um, I want to um, thank both of our guests, Emily Aguirre and Ben Simon, for coming on the show. Also wanna thank our show sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with the help from with help from Taylor Lenzette, the one and only. Um, and show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, Pierre Bienamy. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on Heritage Radio Network's website or as a podcast on iTunes iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe, like, share, follow, post, um, and all of the above uh, to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at EatMattersHRN. I'm Jenna Leu, and thank you for listening.